0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. In view of our text of this morning, which has to do with Revelation chapter 6, let us turn to the Old Testament and the prophecies of Zechariah. Read a number of verses from chapter 1 as well as from chapter 6. We begin with Zechariah chapter 1, the verses 8 to 17. During the night, Zechariah writes, I had a vision, and there before me was a man riding a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine. Behind him were red, brown, and white horses. I asked, what are these, my lord? The angel who was talking with me answered, I will show you what they are. And the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, These are the ones the Lord has sent to go throughout the earth. And they reported to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees, We have gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest and in peace. And the angel of the Lord said, Lord God Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah, which you have been angry with these seventy years? So the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. And the Lord, then the angel who was speaking to me said, proclaim this word. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I'm very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I'm very angry with the nations that feel secure. I was only a little angry, but they added to the calamity. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt. And the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. Proclaim further, this is what the Lord Almighty says, my towns will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. We turn to chapter 6, the verses 1 to 8. I looked up again, and there before me were four chariots coming out from between two mountains, mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red, horses, the second black, the third white, and the fourth dappled, all of them powerful. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these, my Lord? The angel answered me, these are the four spirits of heaven going out from standing in the presence of the Lord of the whole world. The one with the black horses is going toward the north country, the one with the white horses toward the west, and the one with the dabbled horses towards the south. When the powerful horses went out, they were straining to go throughout the earth. And he said, Go throughout the earth. So they went throughout the earth. And he called to me, Look, those going toward the north country have given my spirit rest in the land of the north." This morning we continue our series on the book of Revelation and we have come to chapter 6. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals, then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, come. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to earth as late figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's called Bailing Out. And it happened on my most recent trip to China. We'd finished teaching in a remote northern place not far from Siberia, a place called Budolianchia. And we were heading back to Beijing. But that night, the snow started to fall and the wind picked up. And the man who was supposed to transport us back to the nearest city with an airport took one look at the weather and canceled. He didn't like the conditions, so he bailed out. Now, I couldn't blame him, especially not when the weather turned worse and we ended up in a huge and intimidating blizzard. But still, he did leave us stranded. That is, until a daring taxi driver came to the rescue. Now, you might ask, what does that have to do with Revelation chapter 6? Well, a lot of readers and preachers do much the same when it comes to chapter 6 and what follows in the book of Revelation. They like what they read and what they have dealt with in the first five chapters about the Son of Man, about the letters to the seven churches, about the throne in heaven and the Lamb on the throne, but they don't like what comes in chapter 6 and thereafter. For there, as you can notice, the seals are opened and the judgments begin, and so they they bail out. They stop reading and preachers stop reaching. They stop altogether and they turn aside to some other place in the Bible. And in a way, just like that first driver in China, you can't really blame them. For what now follows in the book of Revelation is intimidating, unsettling, and disturbing. There is a sense in which all of you are now going to have to put on your spiritual hard hats. And so what should we do? Shall we bail out to or continue? Well, beloved, I would suggest that we continue and that we persevere and that we put on those hard hats. After all, we believe and confess that the Holy Scripture is profitable and God-breathed, don't we? In other words, God has given this book as well to his church for a purpose. So let's go on to chapter 6 and keep on reminding ourselves of the bigger picture, which is the ultimate triumph of the Lamb. I preached to you on the opening of the first six seals. This reveals, first of all, devastations on the earth, outbursts in heaven, upheavals in creation, comfort for troubled saints. Well, beloved, take note. Behold, the Lamb is in the center of the throne here. He is handed a scroll, it says in verse 5 of chapter 1, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. He's handed a scroll that only he can open. And then in chapter 6, he begins to do that. He begins to peel back the seals one after the other. But then as he begins to peel back the first seal, notice that one of the four living creatures speaks. With a voice like thunder, he says, come. And then comes a white horse, a red horse, a black horse, and a pale horse. Now when we first read this and we hear the word come, we automatically assume that the living creature is either issuing an invitation here or giving an order. He seems to be telling the horses to come. But yet there is another and perhaps more accurate way to read this, and that is, as a word first of all not directed at these horses, but at the lamb himself, In other words, John is praying and calling on the Lord Jesus Christ to come. And I say this because everywhere else in the book of Revelation where the word come is used, it is directed at the Lord. It's a plea for him to come, to come back, to come triumphantly, to come victoriously. And so what I think is happening here is that the living creature is calling out for Christ to come, but that instead of him coming with the breaking of the first seal, something else comes instead. What comes? A white horse and its rider who holds a bow. He comes and he's given a crown, it says, and then he rides out as a conqueror bent on conquest. So what is this? Who is this? There are those who are quick to say that this is the Lord Jesus Christ and he is coming to conquer with the gospel. And after all, is that not what we read about, for example, in chapter 19 of the same book of Revelation? There, Jesus is depicted as being on a white horse and striking down the nations with the gospel. But nevertheless, as we take a closer look at chapter 6, we may sense already that this identification doesn't quite fit. True, both chapters 6 and 19 speak about a white horse, but it's obvious that the white horse of chapter 6 is different. In what way? Well, notice that the rider is given a bow, which is a weapon of war. And also a crown, and this time it's not a royal crown, but it's a victor's wreath. And finally, look at what he does. He is set on conquest. So if this is not Christ, who is it? Well, you might say it's the personification of the lust for conquest. The first seal opens and presents us with the fact that conquering and desire to conquer others is a common theme throughout the ages. The saints in the seven churches knew all about it. They were always being conquered and taken over. And indeed, peoples everywhere know about it. If the Greeks are not trying to take you over, then the Romans. And if not the Romans, then the French. And if not the French, then the Germans. And if not the Germans, then the Russians. And if not the Russians, then the Americans. History is chock full of armies going out to conquer. The militaristic spirit is alive and well. And living on planet earth. But then if the first seal is about conquest, the second seal is about something closely connected with it. Once again, another living creature says, come, and instead of Christ coming, there comes a red, a fiery red horse. And it too has a rider. He's not given a bow, but he has a large sword. And why that? Well, it says it's to take peace from the earth. It's to make men slay each other. So what does the red horse represent? Well, it represents blood and bloodshed. It depicts the fact that the history of mankind is a history full of the shedding of blood. When armies march, They don't plant flowers. They take lives. They spill blood. When armies march, they don't bring peace. They take peace away. And they bring devastation and disaster and destruction. But yet, that's not all. For connected to the white horse and the red horse, there is also a black horse. The living creature again says, come, but Christ does not come. And instead, there before me, John says, was a black horse. And its rider, notice, holds not a bow or a sword, but a pair of scales in his hand. And in addition, there is a voice which shouts, a quart of wheat for a day's wages, three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage The oil and the wine. Now what's this? Well again, think about it, when armies come and blood is shed, what comes along with it? Is it not scarcity? Some of our more senior members can remember the winter of nineteen forty four in the Netherlands the winter of great hunger and scarcity. Also a winter of exorbitant prices. And so it is here. A quart of wheat can only feed a man and not his family. Three quarts of barley can barely keep a small family alive. In short, the picture here is one of want. A deprivation of living every day on the edge of starvation. But notice it's also a picture of inequality. For look, the oil and the wine are exempt, meaning even in times of war there are some who profit and who continue to live well. So the black horse is about poverty, starvation, malnutrition, Inequality. Yes, yeah, so and that brings us almost naturally and predictably to the fourth seal and to the pale horse. And why a pale horse? Because pale or ashen is, as some of you know, the color of death. Notice, too, that the riders call death, following close behind is 80s, the grave, Or the realm of the dead. And like I said, all of this is kind of predictable. For when armies march, when blood is shed, when famine stalks the land, what comes next but death? Oh, and how death visited the believers in John's day, and, and how it's been visiting believers and mankind ever since. Well, you dive into the history books and you start to count all the casualties of the many, many wars that have been fought throughout the centuries. And the numbers are huge. Millions upon millions of people have been killed. The, the list of victims is endless. Our world talks a lot about peace. It hungers for peace. It has endless conferences about peace. But the reality is, it remains a world of war and death. And yet, thankfully not totally so. For notice, death and haze cannot claim all. Verse 8 says that they were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague and by the wild beasts of the earth. That means there is a limit. Thanks be to God that there is a limit. If He hadn't stepped in, death and Hades would have claimed everything and everyone. But He sets a limit. The fact that you and I may live today in this part of the world in peace is more than anything else due to the intervening and interfering hand of God. Yes, yeah, so that brings us to an important matter. And it's this. Does our Lord, Jesus, send these horses does he cause them to come? Is he ultimately responsible for them? Is he the great author of all of this misery? The answer to those questions is no. These horses arise and are unleashed as long as men and women ignore his will and refuse to do his bidding. Conquests, blood, starvation, and deaths are the bitter fruits that grow in a world that rejects the Lord and caters to its own desires. So Christ doesn't wish these things... Upon the world. But notice he does use. Control. And direct them. For his higher purposes. But then beloved. While the first four seals have to do with devastations. That happen on earth. The fifth seal has to do. With heaven. In heaven. John all of a sudden sees an altar. And under the altar. He sees slain souls. He sees martyrs. And he also hears them. He hears them cry out, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Now, it's important that we don't get this wrong. John is not saying, by implication, that heaven is a place of unrest. Neither is he intimating that the souls there are in torment. Nor is he teaching us to believe that there is all kinds of crying going on in heaven. Now again, you need to connect the fifth seal to the previous four seals. For you see, when conquest, blood, starvation, and death grip the world, you can be sure that there will be casualties. Lots of casualties. And you can also be sure that a lot of these will be innocent casualties. People who did nothing wrong. People who simply got caught in the crossfire. But even more than that, for not only will you have lots of innocent casualties, but you'll have lots of innocent believing casualties. How many believers have not been slain throughout the centuries simply because they believed and confessed the name of Jesus Christ? Why still today it's happening in our world children of God who want to live nothing else than peaceable, holy, loving kingdom lives are still being sled to the slaughter. are still being put to death. And so what well, then? Once they're dead, is it all over? Is that the end of it? Does heaven receive them and at the same time turn a blind eye to the injustice done to them? Does God embrace His saints in eternity, tell them that their troubles are now over and urge them to forget about the past? No, beloved, that's not what happens. These slain saints in heaven and their cries were to the suffering church of John's day a reminder that God doesn't ignore, minimize, or gloss over what has been done in the lives and to the lives of his children. And you can see that. You see that as the sixth seal is opened. For what happens then? You might say, for want of better words, a cosmic meltdown. John writes, there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. The stars in the heaven fell to earth as late figs drop from a tree shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. As you can hear, that's a picture of the end times. This isn't the destruction that will happen before the Christ returns. But there is more for already now. We get previews. Previews of a lot of these things. Think of the earthquakes that have recently devastated Haiti and Chile. Think of what is happening to a nation called the Maldives in the Pacific. It's gradually disappearing as the ocean levels rise. Think of eclipses that turn the sun black. And think of pollution that turns the moon red. And of mudslides and volcanoes and typhoons. Devastation is here already. And it's coming. And so is judgment. In the verses 15 to 17, John describes a most awful scene filled with panic and destruction and desperation. First, he gives a long list of people, seven kinds of people, the powerful, the rich, the slave, and the free. Second, he describes them as hiding in caves and under rocks. Third, he has them inviting the mountains and the rocks to fall on them and to hide them. What an image. And fourth, he has them identify the source of the panic and it's none other than the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And fifth, John has them tell the time for the great day of their wrath has come. And he ends it with a question, who can stand? That's a description of Judgment Day. It's far from pleasant. Some of you said to me some weeks or months ago that you looked forward to this series of sermons on the book of Revelation. I'm not sure you still do today. Or do you want to bail out? Yet, you know, even if you bail out, won't really change anything. Bailing out represents judgment ignored. It doesn't mean judgment stopped or put on hold. It's coming. The sixth seal says it's coming. You can stick your head in the sand. You can close your eyes. You can plug your ears. Stop your mouth. It doesn't matter. Judgment is coming. And for many, also for many today, that should be a most scary thought. But not for you who believe. For really, you have nothing to fear. And no reason to panic. For look at what happens to those who believe. First of all, they're vindicated. You go back to verse 11 and notice that each martyr is given a white robe. You can say that's a sign. And a guarantee that God has not forgotten the injustice done to them. He hears the cries of the souls, so to speak, under the altar. He's not going to turn a deaf ear to their sufferings. They will be vindicated. Their cause will one day be shown to be, as Guido de Bras says so beautifully in Article 37 of the Belgian Confession, the cause of the Son of God. But yet vindication is not the only thing that the martyrs are promised. They're also promised an end to their suffering. Read the second half of verse 11. And they were told to wait a little, a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. Jesus knows the names of those who have been martyred. And he knows, it says here, the names of those who will yet be martyred. And once, and that's the good news, once the number has been completed, once the list had reached fullness, the end will come. In other words, suffering is not always going to be the lot of the children of God. An end is coming to days of pain and persecution and a new day is going to dawn full of peace and freedom and righteousness and joy. And how do we know this and how can we be sure of this? Well look at the one who's in control. It's the lamb. It's the lamb who peels back the seals. It's the lamb who still makes life livable. It's the lamb who hears the prayers of the martyrs. It's the lamb who sets limits. It's the lamb who executes his wrath on the ungodly and the immoral. And you know, normally a lamb is a mild, meek, innocent, weak, vulnerable looking creature. A lamb is a symbol of tenderness and innocence. And that is what he is. That's what he is truly. For all those who believe in him, they have nothing to fear. From the Lamb of God. For those who ignore him. Who insult him, who blaspheme his name, who attack his children. To them he is like a lion. He's the devouring lion of the tribe of Judah. And we're right to fear the lion. If we don't believe in him, if we don't confess his name, then you need to fear the lion. Of the tribe of Judah. But all those who love him. Serve him. And even if you do that with a lot of. Weaknesses and failings. All those. May rejoice. In the lamb. He'll protect you. He'll lead you through the dark days. He'll vindicate you. He'll bring you. To glory. The Lamb, it says in Revelation 7, the next chapter, the Lamb at the center of the throne will be your shepherd. He will lead you to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Amen.